If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 4. If you are visiting with us, we have been for at least a few months now in a series through the epistle of 1 Peter. We come this morning in our regular exposition to chapter 4, and we'll consider verse 7, but I want to read that verse in context, so we'll read verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, please follow along as I read, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together once more. Let's pray. Our Father, we have arrived to that part of our gathered worship in which we come before your word to hear it preached and expounded. May you bless us in the consideration of this passage. May you assist us in the consideration of it. Open our minds, please, to understand, to apply what you have revealed to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine for a moment Uh, that you are at a youth soccer game. You might imagine that you're at one of your children's soccer games. If you're a young person, you might imagine you're playing in the soccer game. And um, I want you to imagine that the first half goes by and and your team, the team you're rooting for, that your child plays for, who you play for, uh, that your team is losing uh, four goals to nothing at the end of the first half. And now I want you to imagine the coach gathering the team after uh, being throttled in that first half and losing so bitterly uh, that he, he huddles them up and he's going to give them the game plan for the second half. He says to them, okay, what we're going to do when we come out of the second half, what I want to see us do is to focus uh, our attention on making the best passes we can possibly make. Okay, just, just the best possible passes to one another. And I want us to focus on ball possession. I want us to, to keep the ball. And if we lose the ball, I want us to play the best defense we've ever played. And so the young people go out there for the second half, and lo and behold, they command possession for 90% of the second half. That is, our team is in control of the ball, and they are making the best passes you've ever seen a youth soccer league ever, ever make, okay? Just with zip on them, going exactly where you intend them to go. The, the, the passing is just unbelievable, perfect form. And, and, and when they lose the ball for that 10% of the second half, when the other team has the ball, they play the best defense uh, that a youth soccer team is possibly uh, capable of. Just, just astounding the way this team uh, passes the ball and plays defense. And then, of course, the game ends. Now, what's the problem? You're still losing four to nothing, right? You haven't won the game. Uh, passing and playing defense was not exactly what's needed. 
Well, I have one point I want to make by that illustration. Don't read too far into this illustration, but there is one basic point that I want us to appreciate about that illustration, and that is that a failure to understand the time can lead to mistaken priorities. A failure to understand the time can lead to mistaken priorities. However, a proper understanding of the time will give us the right priorities. If that coach and that team had properly understood that we only got one more half in this game and there's a deficit to overcome, uh, they perhaps would have taken a different approach to the second half of that game. Their priorities might have been different, and they would have been different as they understood the situation better and the time better. Now, Peter has been addressing these Christians about how to live faithfully as exiles in a world that is not their home. So we as Christians, according to Peter, are what he calls elect exiles. We're sojourners passing through a world that is not our home. We await the coming inheritance, the coming home, which is heaven forever uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. The world around these Christians, Peter says, is hostile to them. And he's concerned especially with their conduct and how they live good and righteous lives in the present age, in this world that is not their home. Now in 1 Peter 4 verse 7, Peter is here calling the minds of these Christians to the time. He wants them to have a proper understanding of the time. And their understanding of the time is meant to inform their priorities and their conduct and how they live. He wants them to understand how they can live well now in the present in light of the end. And that is indeed the title of this message, Living in Light of the End. Now, the opening line of verse 7 is really the controlling thought of verses 7 through 11. We're actually going to take three sermons today, God willing, the following Sunday and the Sunday after, to go through verses 7 through 11. But that opening phrase, the end of all things is at hand, is the controlling setting or context or idea that shapes the rest of Peter's exhortations in verses 7 through 11. This morning we'll look simply at what Peter has to say in verse 7. I have three headings to organize our exposition of this passage. First of all, consider with me the setting in which believers live, and then we'll look at the virtues believers are to cultivate, and then thirdly, the purpose believers are to pursue. Consider with me in the first place the setting in which believers live. Peter begins, verse 7, by saying, the end of all things is at hand. Or it could literally read, the end of all things is drawing near or approaching. A couple of observations about this phrase. First of all, Peter is not making a prediction about when Christ will return. So I don't think Peter is saying that I'm predicting that Jesus is coming back in just a few years because of this or that cultural or political sign that I see, and so gear up, Christ is coming back in A.D. 75. I don't think that's what Peter is doing at all. Precisely what Peter does mean, I'll seek to explain in a moment, but here, let me just say uh, something simple and obvious that I hope you know, and that is that nowhere does the New Testament encourage the setting of dates or the mapping out of end times charts with respect to the coming of Christ. Uh, You may be aware there is an unfortunate history of some evangelicals, particularly in the last hundred years or so, becoming preoccupied with seeking to read uh, current events into the Bible and to devise complex schemes for how and when Christ will return. Uh, Let me just simply remind you 
uh, that 100% of all predictions about when Christ will return have been wrong thus far, uh, and they're not likely to be right in uh, the future. But in all seriousness, uh, I don't encourage Christians to become preoccupied with seeking to discover the precise moment when Christ will return. I don't think the Bible is designed or meant to give us that information. In fact, several passages would lead me to believe such speculations are largely fruitless. And Peter's statement here, anyway, has nothing to do with that. He's not speculating about dates. He's making a much broader statement. So what is Peter saying? What is his meaning? The word that is used for end, he says, the end of all things is at hand. The word that is used, uh, that is translated in English, end, is the Greek word telos, which has a broad range of meanings in the Bible, the, the telos of something. It could refer, first of all, to a precise moment in time, like a, a punctiliar point in time. Hebrews 7.3, speaking of Jesus, uses the word in this way. There, the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days, like a birthday, like a moment in time, nor end of life. He doesn't have a day, a moment in time when his life comes to an end. In that sense, the word telos can refer to the last moment in a durational sequence of time, a point in time. Another way the word is used, the word telos is used, is to connote a period of time, particularly the last stage in a series of stages. So we understand that there are particular ages or eras in redemptive history, uh, the Bible teaches that the coming of Christ and the coming of the new covenant and the building of the church, these things usher in this final stage of redemptive history in which we live now in what is sometimes referred in the Bible as the last days, referring to an era of time. So one passage that uses the word telos in this way is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Now these things happen to them, that is the saints of the old covenant, as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, the last stage in a period of stages, the last of the ages has come upon us who live in this new covenant age, a period of time, a stage of history. And then a third way, and this may be the most common way the phrase is used, telos can be used simply to refer to the outcome or the goal or the aim of something. So, for example, Jesus in Romans 10.4 is said to be the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, I don't think we're to understand that to mean there was some point in time that Paul's referring to there. He's saying Jesus was the goal of the law. He was the, the, the purpose of the law. The law was pointing ahead to Jesus. He is the goal, the fulfillment of the law. 1 Timothy 1.5, there Paul is giving a charge to Timothy. And he says, the end of our charge or the aim of our charge is love. This is the goal. This is what the outcome should be. This is the purpose. The end of the charge or the aim of the charge is love. Well, which do we have here in 1 Peter 4 verse 7 where Peter says, the end, the telos of all things is at hand. Okay, so my answer may be a little disappointing, but I would say I don't think we need to force the term narrowly into any one of these three definitions. In fact, I think in a sense all three definitions are included in 1 Peter 4 verse 7. So this is what I think we're to understand Peter to be saying when he says the end of all things 
is at hand. I think Peter's meaning here is that we have reached both these saints in 1 Peter 4 and saints like us today, we have reached the final stage of history. We are living in the last days. The earlier stages of history anticipated the coming of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, now He has come. And now we have reached the end of the ages or the last of the ages in which the gospel is being preached and the church is being built. The end of the ages has come. The last stage of redemptive history has come. And the final age is bringing us to the goal of all history, namely the final redemption of God's people in the person of His Son. History, this last stage, is moving us toward the goal of all redemptive history, that Jesus will be reconciled with His people in the new heavens and the new earth. The process of redemptive history is reaching its completion. And though the focus is not now on pinpointing a particular moment in time when Jesus will come back and heaven will be ours, one consequence of living in the end of the ages is precisely that Christ could return at any moment in time. That's part of living at the end of the ages in the final stage of history. Christ could come back, friends, one minute from now, and He could come back a thousand years from now. He could come back at any time because, after all, we are living at the end of all things in the last stage of history. So you see all three meanings there. Number one, we're living in the final stage or period of history. Number two, the final stage of history brings us toward the goal, the telos, the end of all things, that Christ will return and we will be fully and finally saved and the inheritance of heaven for which we've so long waited will be ours. And number three, because the end of all things is near, Christ could come back at any moment in time. So what is the setting in which believers live both then and now. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the final age of history. The consummation and the climax of all things when Christ returns is not far off. Therefore, well, therefore what? And that leads us to our second point. So we've considered the setting in which believers live. The end of all things is at hand. We're in the final stage of history. Secondly, consider with me the virtues believers are to cultivate. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. The word therefore signifies that the imperatives to follow flow out of what has been said before. In other words, it's precisely because the end of all things is at hand that we're to have this disposition to cultivate these virtues. And what are these virtues? Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. What effect should the recognition that the end of all things is at hand have on us? What effect does the fact that we are living in the final stage of redemptive history, what effect should that have on us? What should it produce in us? Notice the text doesn't say at the end of all things is at hand, therefore we're to gaze up out the sky just waiting for Jesus to come back. Nor does it suggest that we're to withdraw and isolate ourselves in hermetic communities somewhere far off away from the world. No, in fact, Peter is concerned precisely with how Christians live today in the world in the light of this reality. 
So Tom Schreiner, one of the commentators, says this, the imminence of the end should function as a stimulus to action in the world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles whose time is short should galvanize them to make their lives count now. You see that? Peter is saying our sense that the end is near should not create in us passivity or a sense of fatalism or a kind of complacency about how we live today. Rather, it should motivate us to live in a godly way in the here and now. Like now matters all the more. Because the end of all things is approaching. The end of all things is at hand. We're living in the last days, the final stage of history. Therefore, how we live now matters. Eschatology, the teaching of last things in the Bible, is often presented in order to motivate believers in how to live faithful lives in the here and now. Our knowledge of the time, our knowledge of the future, shapes the significance of the present and the importance of living well now. It fills our days with meaning and significance. We're living in the last of the ages. We're living in the period in which redemptive history is reaching its climax. Therefore, we ought to live faithfully in the present. Well, what does present-day faithfulness look like in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, according to Peter? What virtues are we to cultivate? What disposition should we adopt? Well, you might expect Peter to issue a call for some kind of extraordinary behavior. You might expect Peter to promote the most radical kind of vision for life. You might expect him to issue a call to spend all of our moments evangelizing or devising schemes for saving the world or bringing an end to injustice and poverty the world over. But he doesn't do that. Rather, Peter focuses on quiet, ordinary faithfulness. He gives them two basic imperatives. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Christians, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. He doesn't call these Christians to some extraordinary heights of Christian living and experience. He doesn't encourage them to become frantic and hurried and busy in light of the nearness of the end. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, he says, be self-controlled people and be sober-minded people. It's been alleged that when Martin Luther, the great reformer, was once asked what he would do if he knew the end of the world was to come today, he replied, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. Well, I don't know if he actually ever said that, but you get the point. When Christ comes, we should be found living our lives in ordinary faithfulness to Him. And for Peter, this kind of ordinary faithfulness attainable by every Christian living, attainable by every Christian living in light of the end of all things is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. The two ideas, to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded, when brought together, produce one complete picture of the Christian's character and disposition in light of the end. To be self-controlled is to govern one's thoughts words and actions, as well as one's appetites and impulses, in submission to God and His Word and in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. 
To be self-controlled is to govern one's thoughts, words, and actions, as well as one's appetites and impulses in submission to God and His Word and in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the opposite of how the world is described if we just look over in verse 3 of chapter 4, living according to human passions in sensuality and lust, utterly controlled by bodily appetites and desires. On the contrary, the Christian, the mature Christian, living in light of the end, has learned self-mastery. He controls his bodily appetites. She controls her emotions and feelings. The Christian is in command of himself. Like a skilled husbandman who has learned to command and cultivate his land so that nothing is overgrown. Weeds have been extracted. Everything is well-ordered and properly cared for. So the Christian has command and control over himself. That's self-control. What does it mean to be sober-minded? What is sober-mindedness? To be sober-minded, at least the word that's used here translated sober-minded, can literally be translated to not be drunk. But the idea is, of course, more than that. It is to have a sound mind and judgment, to see reality clearly, to be circumspect, to be possessed with wisdom and sanctified composure in light of what is true. And again, it is the opposite of the world's way of thinking described in verse 3, living in drunkenness and blind idolatry, dominated and bewitched by one's own appetites and not living according to God's will. The sober-minded man or woman sees reality clearly as God would have us see it and lives in light of what is true according to what God has revealed the sober-minded person understands the world and his place in it. He sees life for what it is. He sees people for who they are. He understands the moment and he understands history. And he's able to evaluate the world and to make sound and godly judgments in light of a seasoned and mature view of the world and of the truth. With these two virtues, self-control and sober-mindedness, Peter is talking about the kind of inner world and mental state that the believer with God's help should cultivate. Peter wants Christians who are fully in control of their thoughts and their bodies and their minds. The Christian who accurately perceives the realities of life and of the gospel and of the will of God. And that perspective is to motivate a sound and self-controlled way of life. And this mindset, of course, stands in contrast to the mindset of the world. Christian people who live in light of the end are people who are self-controlled and sober-minded. They're not restless or anxious. They're not out of control. They're not over-dramatic. They're not hurried or busy. They're not impulsive or rash. They're not reactionaries. They're not loud or chaotic. They're not constantly moved and tossed about by their emotions or by the impulse of the moment or by false teaching. Rather, they are self-controlled and sober-minded. These virtues, so underestimated in our day, are basically a function of Christian maturity. This is a picture of the mature, wise, and godly Christian man or woman. Christian maturity, something every Christian is to aspire to and to attain. Christian maturity is stable. Christian maturity is wise. 
Christian maturity is fixed and grounded and steadfast and sure. Christian maturity knows the times and has numbered the days. Christian maturity is composed in the midst of changing circumstances and difficult trials. We should all, God being our helper, aspire to this picture of Christian maturity, to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded. Friends, these kinds of Christians are the kinds of Christians who change the world. These are the kinds of men and women who endure and persevere. Christians who have learned self-control and sober-mindedness are like big oak trees with many rings going out from the center. They have learned Christian maturity. They have learned self-control. They have learned sober-mindedness. And when the winds and foul weather of this world beat upon them and blow upon them, they stand immovable because they have learned self-control and sober-mindedness. So stands the Christian who has cultivated inner maturity and strength through nurturing the virtues of self-control and sober-mindedness. These Christians are like men and women who were once children, but have grown through adolescence and into adulthood and have left off their childish ways. They have learned by Christ's help to command their bodies and their minds and their emotions and their hearts and to incline all of these things Christward in obedience to Him. Jenna and I have little children. Many of you have observed little children. Children are impetuous, right? They're governed by the impulse of the moment. They're governed at every moment by their felt needs and their felt sense of what they want, right? But adults are not that way. At least they're not supposed to be that way. We grow out of childishness. We learn self-control. We learn to see the world clearly as it is. We learn sober-mindedness. These are the virtues that Peter is calling these Christians to. He says, the end of all things is at hand. We are in the last stage of redemptive history. The climax and the goal of history is not far out. Christ will soon return. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Thirdly and finally, brothers and sisters, we've seen the setting in which believers live. We live at the end of all things. Secondly, the virtues believers are to cultivate. Now, thirdly, consider with me the purpose believers are to pursue. Verse 7 again, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, and the ESV has it, for the sake of your prayers, which is not a really bad translation. They're injecting some interpretation there. Uh, If the idea is that, well, be self-controlled and sober-minded because then you'll have a better chance of having your prayers heard, I don't think that's the idea at all. The the Greek literally reads, be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayers, and that's how it reads. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, for prayers. And I understand the way the language is constructed to mean we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded, living in light of the end of all things for the purpose that we would pray and that we would pray aright. I think that's Peter's meaning. Be self-controlled, Christians. Be sober-minded so that you can give yourself to the purpose of prayer and so that you can pray as you ought. The knowledge that Christians live in the final stage of God's redemptive plan, according to Peter, should motivate us to prayer, not complacent fatalism, not to leaving off prayer and engaging in more important work. Rather, living in the light of the end means we will give greater priority to prayer. 
The world around is hostile to believers. We are exiles heading heavenward. We are seeking to live good and faithful lives in the present age. We await the hope of heaven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, brothers and sisters, give yourself in all self-control and sober-mindedness to the work of prayer. Now, is that what you would expect Peter to say in light of the foregoing? One of the commentators says this, the nearness of the end has led some believers to lose their heads and act irrationally. On the contrary, believers should think sensibly as they contemplate the brevity of life in this world. Those who know the contours of history are able to assess the significance of the present. Their sensible and alert, uh, alert thinking is to be used for prayer, for entreating God to act and move in the time that still remains. Now, we often think prayer is what we'll do when we have lots of time and when we have nothing else to do. Prayer is what we do last, not what we do first. If something must go, we'll let it be prayer. But Peter says that if we know the end is near, and if we're sober-minded people, we would pray more, not less. The realization that God is bringing history to a close and that we live in the last of the ages, that the end of all things is at hand, should provoke believers to pray. You might think of it this way, and this has really helped me as I've contemplated this passage. Again, working with this idea of the time and living in light of the time and assessing where we are in redemptive history. As Christians who live in the final stage of redemptive history, there's a sense in which we live now in the era of prayer. We live now in the age of prayer. We are to pray for God to act in the present because this is the age in which He has chosen to act on behalf of the gospel. When the end of all things comes, there will be no more time to pray and no more use for prayer. You recognize that, brothers and sisters. We're not going to pray in heaven. Then we'll behold Him face to face, just as we're looking at each other now, except in sinless perfection. There will be no use for prayer when we get to heaven. Now is the time for prayer. Now is the time to implore God to act. Now is the time to pray for Him to move. This is the age in which Christians are to give themselves to prayer without ceasing, in private and in public, in worship, around the dinner table, in specially called meetings at the church prayer meeting, like the meeting that we'll have this evening. Now is the time for prayer. We live in the age of prayer. I've heard many saints say as they have approached the end of their lives that if they could go back and do it again, they would pray more. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you're nearing your dying day, if you know that, and you take stock of your life, isn't it interesting that so many Christians think, you know what, I would have spent more time in prayer, not less. As I contemplate the brevity of life and the things that matter, and as I contemplate the reality of eternity, I would have prayed more. I just want to encourage those of us who are younger to learn from that. You don't need to wait till then to adopt that kind of a perspective. Okay, so... so so I've observed, as we have had our prayer meetings, we, we have 
corporate prayer meetings uh, twice a month on the first and third Sunday nights of the month. And I've just observed that a lot of older folks faithfully attend those meetings. And though there are some younger folks, there aren't as many younger folks as there are older folks. I don't think it should be that way. I think the younger folks here should take a cue from older veteran saints who have learned the priority of prayer, who see it as significant, who see it as urgently relevant, that see it as appropriate conduct and work to engage in in light of the end of all things. Now, I'm not saying that whether or not you attend prayer meeting is a litmus test for faithfulness. There are plenty of legitimate reasons not to come to Sunday evening prayer. Perhaps that's the only night that you spend with your aging parent or grandparent, or perhaps you have to get up very, very early at the crack of dawn, and there's last-minute work that you need to do to prepare for Monday's meeting. There are legitimate reasons not to come to a prayer meeting. It's not a litmus test for faithfulness. I'm not going to say, as my brother and Fred Ed Moore said a few weeks ago, though I was really glad he said this, uh, that if you're home in the Lazy Boy and not at the prayer meeting, you're in sin. Um, I think we all understand that he was using some hyperbole there. I didn't put him up to that, okay? I acknowledge there are legitimate reasons not to come to a prayer meeting, and it will never be a litmus test for faithfulness in this church. Some people commute from long distances, okay? But, but I'm talking about, and I, I'm thinking primarily of young people here. And we'll just say that's 40 and under. When you get to the end of your life, as you appreciate the imminence of the end, I don't think you're going to wish that you had gone back to watch the ninth season of The Office for the fifth time through. I just don't think that's, that's going to appear to you as something that really matters. And I don't think you're going to wish that you had really caught the second half of the Panthers game back in 2021. I could tell you how that game's going to go. The Panthers lose. You don't have to wonder about that. If you'd like, I could tell you the score at the end of prayer meeting. They're going to lose. I'm being silly, but I mean to make a very serious point. Christians who live in light of the end see the value and the priority and the significance of prayer. I'll never forget, if I can just be self-critical, I was probably 22, 23. I had moved to Mevin, North Carolina, became a member of the church there was studying for pastoral ministry, was single. I was probably working 20 to 25 hours a week painting homes and doing landscaping, and I had a full seminary course load. I don't regard myself as having been that busy. And it became my habit not to go to the Wednesday night prayer meeting. The church that I was a part of had a more traditional schedule. And I was just kind of spotty in my attendance at the prayer meeting. And I will forever credit one of the pastors, Andy Dunkerton, coming alongside to me and saying, brother, what are you doing? I don't know what you think is so important to do on a Wednesday night, but the people of God are gathering to prayer. I think you can make the time to come. Not least of all because you're a man who aspires to be engaged in the work of ministry and prayer according to Acts 6. But even those of us who are not, living faithfully in light of the end, should we not give the higher priority to the work of prayer? If you are not attending the meetings, you don't answer to me, brothers and sisters. Evaluate them before God. But I would encourage you, consider this. Is it worthwhile? Is there a way we can, as a couple, as a family, prioritize prayer more highly in our lives? The more we understand the time, the greater priority we will give to prayer. 
This was certainly Peter's perspective. The end of all things is at hand. The time is short. The world is wicked. Christ will soon return. Therefore, pray. And this prayer is to be governed by thoughts and by a whole frame of mind that is sober-minded and self-controlled. These are not breathless prayers based on daydreams and vain thoughts. These are not careless prayers shot up in a moment of chaos and confusion. These prayers are focused and informed by what's true. They're predicated upon what God has revealed in His Word, and they reflect the settled disposition of the mature saint depending on God, beseeching Him to move and to act, earnestly looking for Him to do what only He could do in the sphere of time and space and history. Mature, self-controlled, and sober-minded Christians living in light of the end will give themselves to prayer. Let me briefly give three lines of application and we'll transition into our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Three brief lines of application. We should all give more thought to where we stand in redemptive history and how that should influence our lives in the present. We should all give more thought to where we stand in redemptive history and how that should influence our lives in the present. My brother, my sister, life is a vapor. Eternity is near. Heaven and hell are real. Jesus is coming back very soon. What implications does that have for how you're living? Are you living well in light of the end? So now is not the time for daydreaming. Now is not the time for coasting and for rest. Now is the time for working, for sowing that we might reap for living for the life to come. Now is the time to slay sin. Now is the time to follow Christ. Now is the time to cultivate the virtues He calls us to. Now is the time to serve the church. Now is the time to live in light of the world to come. I would just warmly encourage you, brother, sister, each of you, take stock of your life and that of your family and ask the question, am I living as I ought in light of the end of all things. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. Second point of application. We should all take proactive steps to cultivate the virtues of self-control and sober-mindedness. We should all take proactive steps to cultivate the virtues of self-control and sober-mindedness. This is God's will for His people. Christians living in light of the end in a hostile world that is not their home the will of God is that we would be self-controlled and sober-minded. Well, how can I cultivate those virtues as a child of God and one who is seeking to follow Christ? Well, the passage does not say, but I have a few practical and pastoral suggestions. Number one, read the Bible every day. Read the Bible every day. Don't just read devotionals. Don't just skim over a verse or two. Read deeply in God's Word purpose that this is the one appointment I will not miss. Time in God's Word daily. If you have to choose between breakfast and the Bible, you choose the Bible. Self-controlled and sober-minded people are those who have had their minds conditioned and regulated by the Scriptures. And friends, that doesn't happen usually through sudden epiphanies and in moments of time where all of a sudden God just speaks to you 
And, and you just grow by leaps and bounds. It's not like, what's that children's cartoon, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? What happened that day, no one quite knew except the Grinch's heart grew ten sizes plus two. That's not how it typically goes in Christian growth and sanctification. I, I fear that too many Christians are waiting to get zapped with some kind of sanctification juice. They're just breathlessly hunting for some epiphany moment where God's going to take them through all these stages of sanctification and maturity in one instant. But no, brothers and sisters, growth in the Christian life is steady and slow. It happens over a lifetime of regularly taking in the Word of God. In that sense, it's like building muscles. You don't build muscles by having one really good workout. You got to go in the gym every day, and you got to Train yourself and do different methods of lifting weights and cardio and all these different things in order to condition yourself and to grow muscles and things like that. It's a little bit like, so, so when Jenna and I moved into our house, our backyard didn't have any grass. And I've been laboring now for four years to grow grass in the backyard, and we had it aerated and seeded and all this different stuff laid down. I remember talking to the true green guy, so, so what, like a couple weeks, I'll see some grass here? And he's like, no. It's more like a couple years, a few years, little by little, a little more grass every spring. But no, it doesn't happen like that. The Christian life is like that. It's slow and steady growth. And in our consideration, our reading of God's Word, we should not be hunting for epiphany moments. Rather, we are to look for the steady accumulation of blessing over months and years of consistently taking in the Word of God. And people who do that little by little become the kind of people who are self-controlled and sober-minded. A second practical suggestion for how to become this kind of Christian, study the lives and examples of Christians who are self-controlled and sober-minded. I don't mean primarily in terms of church history. I mean in terms of the saints sitting in this room now. So we have many Christians here who are self-controlled and sober-minded people, and we have some Christians here who are not. We have some Christians here who are exceedingly mature and we have some Christians who are not. It's like that in every church. Well, what are those of us who are more immature and less self-controlled and less sober-minded to do? Well, we are to sit at the feet of those who, by God's help, have accumulated these graces and these virtues. We're to observe them. We're to study them. We're to talk to them. We're to ask them to pray for us. We should learn from the examples of those who are self-controlled and sober-minded. A final encouragement to cultivate these virtues. Throw yourself, my brother and sister, into the life of the church. Throw yourself into the life of the church. Spiritual formation in the Christian life happens not in the context of isolation, but in the context of Christian community and fellowship. Christian growth happens as one is regularly exposed to the means of grace in worship. It happens in the context of the local church. It is not an ironclad law, but it is a general rule that heavy engagement in the life of the church lends itself toward the development of Christian maturity. And it is a universal rule that people always struggle spiritually when they withdraw from the life of the church. It's one of the reasons why if someone comes to me having some particular sin struggle or some unfulfilled desire in terms of their own Christian growth, almost always my first prescription beyond asking about their daily quiet time with God is to come more regularly to church gatherings. Because it is so often in the context of these gatherings 
that Christian graces and Christian virtues are formed. That is God's way of working. That is His will. If you want to be a self-controlled and sober-minded man or woman, brother, sister, throw yourself into the life and ministry of the church. Third and final point of application before we come to the table. Very simple. In light of this passage, we should all pray more. We should all pray more. One way Christians can live faithfully as exiles and can live faithfully in light of the end is by a focused commitment to prayer. The reality that the end of all things is near should lead all of us to pray more, not less. We should all commit to pray more in our homes. Husbands and dads, lead your families in prayer. Moms, lead your kids in prayer. If you don't have kids, pray for and with your husband. Let's have prayer around the dinner table. Prayers at bedtime. Prayers when we awake in the morning. However we do it, and there's room for great variance in how we do it, but let us in our families and in our homes commit ourselves to pray. Let's be families living faithfully in light of the end. Let's have more spontaneous prayer among the church body. There is nothing wrong and something altogether wonderful uh, to see what sometimes happens after gatherings here on Sunday mornings. There will be a brother or sister off here or here. There will be a couple of brothers here or sisters there, and they'll be talking about something that's important to them, something that is of significance, and then they'll, they'll just spontaneously pray together. That's a good and godly thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's not somehow performing your piety before men. That's Christians living faithfully in light of the end. I'll tell you, there's almost nothing that encourages the pastors of this church more than when we hear of saints gathering midweek in small group prayer meetings. Here are a few sisters. They gather at six in the morning over at so-and-so's house and they pray. Here are two men that have purposed to pray together on their commute to work. Uh, Here are folks gathering together No one is keeping track of them. There's no program that they're following, but they see the priority of prayer, and they have purpose to get together and to get after this work of beseeching God to act in time and space. And brothers and sisters, let us, both by our attendance at corporate prayer meetings and by our heartfelt engagement in those meetings, reflect as a church a larger commitment to corporate prayer. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was at Mount Vernon Baptist Church, maybe a month ago or something like that, and I I said at some point in a message or a talk or something that um, so many people came to us and expressed, or came to me, excuse me, and expressed that they had been praying for our church, that they love our church, that they listen carefully to the updates about our church, And, and as the pastor and the one visiting there, it's so sweet to have all those interactions, I felt the burden to kind of bring that back to you, that you would know there's this church in Sandy Springs, North Atlanta, that prays regularly and faithfully for our church. The last thing I did before leaving and coming back here was to attend their evening service prayer meeting, very much like the evening gatherings that we have, and uh, they wanted to do a brief interview with me. They do that when guest speakers come. And so, so I was at the front, and, and Aaron Menikoff, the pastor there, is interviewing me, and he wanted an update on our church. And again, as I thought about this, I thought, you should know how your pastors talk about you when we're not around uh, and when you're not around. Uh, And so, I'm so thankful to God as I was telling the church how they could pray for us, it was mostly encouraging them and asking them to thank and bless God with us. I have this sense, I think my fellow elders have this sense that God has blessed us unusually, like in a special way. 
And I was just listing all the various ways God has smiled on our gatherings and smiled on our church, the unity and the love that is present among the church body, the culture of hospitality and discipling, the eagerness to be engaged in the work of missions around the world and to support the work of missions, all these wonderful things that God has been pleased to work in our midst. And I said, look, I would just be an ungrateful servant and a snotty pastor if I didn't get up here and say, please bless God, thank Him with us for the graces he has wrought in Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem. I said, I have one prayer request for a way we could improve as a church. And this is at an evening service where I'm looking at a church that had about 350 people there in the morning and probably about 230 there in the evening, okay? And I said, pray that, that, that our church would reflect a higher commitment to corporate prayer by greater attendance at the evening prayer meetings. If I had one request for the saints of Mount Vernon Baptist Church to pray for Emmanuel Church, pray that we would give ourselves in a larger way to corporate prayer. And look, I just think, I mean, that's just not a, a um, hobby horse or some kind of pet concern I have. I think it's a biblical concern. Christians who live faithfully in light of the end see the value, the priority, and the importance of prayer. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayers. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know that the end of all things this goal that we're moving toward and indeed that moment when Christ does return, that that will be filled with blessing for your church and for your people. For that will mean the end of our sojourn, that will mean for us the end of sin, that will mean the end of sorrow and of suffering, and most of all it will mean the end of being apart from you. We will be forever with the Lord, how we long for that day. You have purposed in saving us not to immediately withdraw us from the world. You have taught us in your word how to live faithfully in the world, how to live faithfully in the here and now. Help us to be faithful in our own generation. As we live in this period where the end of all things is at hand and fast approaching, may we be found faithful in how we live in our own context and as a local church. We pray that would produce in us the eager pursuit of these virtues of self-control and sober-mindedness. May these virtues shine forth from this body. May they be true of every man or woman here. And may that drive us toward this great purpose of praying. As those who have, by your grace, become self-controlled and sober-minded, those who see the world as it is, who understand the truth, who understand the time, who understand matters of eternity and the world to come, may we in a greater way give ourselves to the very worthy work of coming to you in prayer. Bless us now as we reflect upon and remember the death of the Lord Jesus and his gospel and what his blood has accomplished for our sins. Draw near to us again, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.